We doubted yesterday whether Mike DeWine would actually take a stand on Donald Trump's call for a boycott of Goodyear, and then he did. Way to go, Mike DeWine. We'll be talking about that today on This Week in the CLE, the podcast discussion of the Northeast Ohio News by the team here at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Chris Warnowski and Jane Cahoon. Another week in the books. Feels good, right? Yeah, yes, let's let, let's get through it. <laughs> okay. Why can't ousted House Speaker Larry Householder find a lawyer to defend him on a racketeering charge in the $60 million first energy bribery scheme to bail out aging nuclear plants? Jane Cahoon, I love this story just because of the twists and turns it takes. And the reason yeah. he can't find a lawyer is a fascinating one. And it speaks to just how big this scheme really is. Yeah, the problem is he can't find a conflict-free lawyer. How do you like that? I mean, it, it does. It, it kind of, I guess there are a lot of lawyers out there who are somehow connected, at least through their clients or whatever, to all the players in this in this vast scheme. But Householder got his arraignment. He's the only one who hasn't been arraigned yet. He got it delayed for two weeks by a judge because of this failure to find a lawyer. He had a couple of lawyers who have asked to withdraw because, you know, citing um, unspecified conflict. And the judge said, yeah, you know, he thought that was a legitimate reason to delay the arraignment, but he, but he ordered Householder to, you know, devote heavy effort to, to finding another lawyer. Now, there's speculation about this, that you're probably right to say that Yes, this scheme was vast and involves a lot of people, but we're hearing that it might be about money. You know, I mean, I well, we can't say that for sure, but but we know from the documents that Householder had problems with this house in Florida. You know, we think the feds want to seize his assets. So, you know, you got to have money for a big defense like this. So, you know, that could be the holdup. Yeah, although, and we have a story, John Canigli is working on a story I think we'll publish next week about the way First Energy has kind of controlled Columbus through bullying tactics over the years. If it is true that First Energy has been the master of energy policy, Brent Larkin's addressed this, others have addressed this, then their tentacles are far-reaching because they will have dealt with most of the legislators and most of the legislators deal with lobbyists and most of the lobbyists deal with the law firms, I think it's entirely believable if you have this gigantic muscle that's controlled what's gone on in Columbus all these years, that most of the lawyers would have conflicts. <laughs> I mean, I, what would be interesting is to go through each of the firms in the Columbus and the environs and elsewhere in the state and just see, do any of them not have a conflict? I mean, even Kevin Kelly, who's launching a... Uh, his own investigation of whether First Energy muscled out Cleveland Public Power. His firm, I think, represented First Energy, so I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, he doesn't have a conflict. I think it actually is believable. Plus, you know, you don't want to hire some bozo. You're, you want to get a quality law firm. You want to get a quality lawyer. Whether you're going to fight this or negotiate a deal where you give everybody up, you need you need good representation here. But point taken, he's he's going to have his pockets turned inside out by this. It'll be interesting to see if he ends up like with a public defender. Wow. That that, yeah. I mean, that would be 
I think that would be embarrassing for somebody of his stature. I mean, that's and I, and I don't say that to denigrate public defenders. That's a tough job, but you know, you got to think of somebody going from such a position of power to to the optics of that. I, I you know, you just that would be embarrassing for him. Well, we'll have, we'll have to see in two weeks who he gets and what the caliber of the attorney is. I mean, this seems like a small story, but I do think it speaks to the the depth of First Energy's penetration into the halls of power. It's this week in the CLE. What are the practical ramifications of Cuyahoga County's color-coded coronavirus rating going to orange from red? And why won't Cuyahoga Health Director Terry Allen, who's embroiled in a bit of a blackface controversy, talk about it? Chris Ranowski, the move to from red to orange, it's something that we've been talking about for weeks. We kept thinking it would happen and you raised this the other day, you said, but what does it really mean? And the answer is not a lot. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, you know, first of all, I want to point out that that question was quite a journey. I mean, you went from the coronavirus to colors to blackface. There's that, that, that is a, that is a a heavy question. That's a lot to unpack, but, but it it really, it's a guideline. It's, it's something that, you know, schools and businesses and, and things can sort of look to and actually, you know, sort of determine what they're going to do. I mean, we're still under a mask mandate statewide. We still have, you know, it's not really going to change a whole lot of behavior and a lot of business, like how businesses are run. I think, you know, you can look at a lot of schools that are, are kind of looking at these color coded counties as, as a, as a guideline for driving their decision making and, and, and how they're going to reopen and how they're going to educate this fall. But largely, I mean, there's, there's, there's no lifting of anything that occurs when we drop down from red to orange. But let me, let me push back a little bit because it does get to the second part of this question. Well, originally being a red county meant you had a mask mandate and, right. and, Cuyahoga County and a bunch of counties had it, and we started to see the changes we've discussed because it worked. He made it statewide, which no longer meant much. But mm-hmm. when Cuyahoga was red, the the county health department run by Terry Allen recommended schools start remotely. And so all of the teachers and parents who had been thinking their kids were going to go back had to spin on a dime and make plans to go remotely. And they all have there. We, we had a great story published yesterday by Emily Bamforth about how much energy and planning has gone into virtual teaching this fall mm-hmm. compared to the lack of time in March. People should read it. It's good stuff. But now, but there was a fear that if we did go orange, the health department might have a different recommendation, which gets to the second part, which, which before we get to that, let me talk about the blackface thing. We didn't talk about this when this originally came out. Terry Allen in 1990 dressed up as buckwheat of the little rascals and a picture came out about this. The health board immediately came out and put support behind him. He put out a statement or did an interview in which he said, hey, that was 30 years ago. The only thing I think we should point out here is buckwheat has always been one of the most racist icons of popular culture. And 1990 is not ancient times. 1990, the country was moving into enlightenment. I can't imagine that a black person looking at the Buckwheat character in 1990 would see anything but a racist icon. And Terry Allen is in charge of trying to get racism declared a public health problem. So so I would imagine that black people in Cuyahoga County might be troubled by the fact that the leader of that serious effort 
1990 had such poor judgment that he dressed up as one of the most racist icons in the history of the country. And I am surprised that the Cuyahoga Health Board, without much discussion, just immediately said, we support him. There was no discussion about, hey, should this guy go because this is such an important issue? So now moving into Terry Allen in this issue, they've had weeks to think about what going orange would mean. And the first thing he did yesterday was refuse to talk about it. Right. I, I just, that, that makes no sense to me. Why wouldn't you be ready to tell the schools right off the bat, hey, we're not changing our recommendation. Breathe easy. The anxiety in the schools could not be higher right now. Yeah. And and I, I mean, just a, a lack of leadership throughout this whole process has been a problem at, at, at many, many levels of government. I mean, not just locally. So, you know, to say that I'm, I, I'm not surprised by this at all, at which I, I think speaks poorly of, you know, the county health boards and the directors and everybody who has a hand in this process. And, you know, you, you look at, you look at the schools and you look at educators, you know, I mean, your wife's a teacher. I know a lot of teachers and, you know, they're hurting, they're desperate. They want, answers and they want clarity and they want, you know, they, they need leadership and they need people to look to who can answer the tough questions and who are, are going to be honest with the public about, you know, how these children are going to be taken care of, how they're going to get their education. And, and I think it's a, dis, you know, it's disappointing, you know, I mean, you know, here, here's an opportunity to really show leadership and you didn't. So, well, and what you don't know is we gave them a heads up that, mm-hmm. Hey, if we go to orange later today, because the briefing's not till two, Courtney Stoffy said, I'm going to be calling to find out what that's going to mean, because obviously you guys have been talking about it and they just shut her down. And I, it, from the beginning, you know, remember in the early days of the pandemic, they wouldn't provide any numbers in any kind of geographical zone. When people were clamoring, the people who pay their salaries were clamoring for knowledge. So we beat them and beat them until they finally started to do that. And they've gotten much better about the data. But their initial thought was, we're telling you nothing. And here, I and look, I know you said my wife's a teacher. Teachers are anxious about this. They're worried now something's going to change because of everything hinged on being a red county. So now that we're not a red county, what does it mean? And the answer is, yeah, we'll tell you tomorrow. It, it's yeah. just, it's, it's <laughs> like what you said. It's not public service. It's provincialism. And it's a surprise. I also want, and I wonder if they're actually going to take questions. Um, there hasn't really been a public session that I'm aware of in which Terry Allen has faced the music of questions from the media about the blackface episode. Well, and and I think, you know, you can look at, I mean, we have enough history in this now. I mean, we're what, six months into this, this ordeal, you know, this pandemic. And, you know, you can look at, you know, the state response, the county response, the city response, and you can kind of look at where the holes in what they've provided to the public are, you know, as far as information, we don't, we still don't know a lot about contact tracing, you know, early on, there was a lot of misdirection about numbers, uh, you know, differing opinions about masks and things like that. We should be at a point right now where the public has access to more raw information about this, about what we've gone through and what we've experienced to help inform our decision making. I mean, I think business leaders, I think every institution 
you know, should be able to have access to this stuff so they can decide how, you know, how they're going to reopen and, and, and whether or not they need to take stronger precautions for their customers to keep people safe. You know, I agree. we're going to look at we're going to look back at this as a huge failure of our government and a real prime example why transparency is so, so crucial for the public to fight for. Well, and I don't think the Republicans have the right motive, but their drive to review the power of health departments is a good one because it just didn't work this time. I should point out before we go to another topic, Channel 19 is the news station that broke the Terry Allen blackface story, which was which was a public service, I think. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We wondered Thursday whether Ohio Governor Mike DeWine would take a stand on President Donald Trump's call for a boycott of Akron-based Goodyear Tire and Rubber, and he did. Jane Cahoon, what was it? Well, he disagreed with Donald Trump. He does not support a boycott. He said, you know, look, we shouldn't be boycotting this good company. They have Ohio workers who are doing a good job and making a good product. That said, you know, he didn't go after Trump in any sense of the word. He didn't really, you know, criticize him directly. But but he made it clear that we shouldn't be doing a boycott of a major manufacturer in Ohio. Hey, I I look, we we talked in pretty strong terms yesterday about how surprised we were or not surprised because it's not a surprise, but how wrong it was for the governor of Ohio to not immediately come out and say, don't boycott this great company, this American manufacturer. Uh, You know, we and we said this question will come up in the briefing today. And we we predicted he would not take a stand. So uh, he took the stand. He did the right thing. I mean, because there is no mincing words about this. You shouldn't boycott good here. I mean, it's just crazy. Um, you know, Once I mean, again, Chris, he listened to you. Yeah, that's what it is. But, you know, there was one thing that came up in the protest yesterday that I wish we had thought of when we were talking about this yesterday. There, there was the, the, the comparison. Donald Trump wants you to boycott this major American manufacturer because they won't let their employees wear his MAGA hats, which are made in China. <laughs> I just thought that was that was a great, great perspective. I also like Tim Ryan's line about, you know, the blimp being the only thing with more hot air than Donald Trump. <laughs> oh, like for that. crying out loud. Can I point out one other thing? On Thursday's podcast, we were talking about DeWine and his reluctance to criticize Trump about anything. And I said, you know, I thought there was like one other time where he did disagree with him. And in fact, I look back and check. It was it was on May 29th during the George Floyd protests when when DeWine said he disagreed with another controversial tweet that that Trump put out that said, you know, when the looting begins, the shooting begins. So that's another time where I believe it was Andrew Tobias at that briefing uh, asked him about it. And he said, he disagreed with that and that it was a leader's job to to bring people together, not to. So so I want to point out the two times then that DeWine has disagreed with something Trump said. It was under questioning from Cleveland.com plain dealer reporters. <laughs> yeah, that's where one for us. Uh, we should also point out a good year didn't just prohibit make America great again hats. It also prohibited Blue Lives Matter hats. And yesterday it reversed the policy and is allowing employees to show support for police. They claim they always supported police. They just didn't want political statements, but they did back off on that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How does Congressman Jim Jordan 
who just wrote an op-ed for us attacking America's cancel culture, find a way to justify President Trump's call for a Goodyear boycott as not being part of the cancel culture. Chris Wernowski, this is truly gymnastics of logic. <laughs> yeah, to answer your question, he did it creatively. Uh, so we've already talked about this story a little bit. So Goodyear said it would ban Make America Great Again and Blue Lives Matter clothing. But the company said that it was fine for employees to wear clothing that was supportive of LGBTQ plus and Black Lives Matter messaging. Jim penned an op-ed for us this week about cancel culture which is kind of the culture war issue that the I feel like the Republican Party is going to ride into the general election this year. So we had a reporter ask him if he was worried about the cancel culture, then why is he why isn't he making hay about the president meddling with the wardrobe decisions of a private company in this free market economy in these United States of America? And and his response was, and I quote, it's good year that's involved in trying to cancel all the people who would wear Blue Lives Matter masks or hats or T-shirts or would wear Make America Great hats, T-shirts, or masks. And he also accused the company of discriminating against conservatives by letting uh, people wear the Black Lives Matter and LGBTQ apparel while blocking messages that were favorable to conservatives. So actually, I do think he has a point on that. We talked about this where, where Goodyear says we block political speech, but not social justice speech. That that was about as tortured a logic for well, me as Jim Jordan's explanation was yesterday. Can I can I make an argument that, for this though? Because I, I sure. feel like there's there's actual there's some logic to this, and and it may you may disagree with it. You probably will, and I'm sure a lot of people in the outer rings might disagree with this too. But the the statement I don't live in the outer ring. I'm an inner <laughs> I know, guy. I know, I know, I know. But people who are involved in I think Black Lives Matter don't believe it's a political statement. It's it's an emphatic statement from a historically marginalized community that is kind of exhausted with seeing people killed by police. And it has been adopted as a political issue. But the movement, you know, the, the idea of Black Lives Matter is saying black saying Black Lives Matter out loud is should not be controversial. It should be something that we accept. Yes, black lives do matter. And LGBTQ issues are really only a political issue because people like Jim Jordan build political careers out of trying to deny people the same rights that straight people like the three of us enjoy. So, you know, when I was young, the Republican Party was party of personal liberty and LGBTQ plus issues wouldn't be political issues if people like Jim Jordan didn't spend so much time focused on the sex lives of people who, again, just kind of want the same rights and liberties of people like us. And Blue Lives I, I Matter... Actually what? Don't disagree. I actually don't disagree with what you just said. My position on the Goodyear thing was more if you're going to allow some statements on clothes and not others, you set yourself up for this kind of argument. But you, right. everything you just said I, is right on the money. But Blue Lives Matter is a political statement. One, there's no such thing as blue people. Two, police. No, but it, are, no, I, I, no, no, I mean, you're saying just, police I, lives matter. But, but, yeah. but blue lives matter. Police unions are a powerful lobbying block. We, we tend to not look at police unions as lobbying and as lobbyists, but that's what it is. They have a lot of money. They have a lot of political power, as we saw just this week with the NYPD endorsing Donald Trump and as, you know, our police union did back in 2006. And so they have enormous political power and enormous power over the daily lives of a lot of Americans. So to argue that that's not a political statement, I think, is kind of folly because that is a political group. You know, they have a political motive and, you know, MAGA is a campaign slogan. You know, I mean, that was something that 
came up, you know, was designed for okay. the 2016 presidential campaign. All so. right. You've made your point. It's <laughs> this right. week in the CLA. What's the latest move by the BMV to save me from having to go to one of their crowded offices where I might get the coronavirus? Jane Cahoon, Lieutenant Governor John Houston made a surprise announcement yesterday when he was much more cogent than he was on Tuesday <laughs> and, and laid one on us that's actually good news for people. What is it? Yes, it is. You can now print your temporary tags at home without having to go into a deputy registrar office. You, you can you know, pay for it and then print it out and put it on your car and you'll be all set. You just have to go to oplates.com, which is the Ohio Bureau of Motor Vehicles uh, site. And it's just another way. They, they really have tried during this pandemic to find ways to uh, let people avoid going into the offices and like get in line online if they do have to go to the offices and you can get your tags and your plates, you know, order those online, et cetera. So they really have tried here. And this was just one more thing you can do from the comfort of your home. I put out a uh, question this week on my subtext text messaging account, asking people what the silver lining of the pandemic could include, you know, it kicks off with the idea that South Africa had no flu season this year because all of the efforts to stop the coronavirus blocked the flu, but, but there's lots of them. And I, I believe that in the end, the automation of government services to spare people having to go into these archaic buildings and deal with people who might not be working very hard are, are great. I mean, and they'll, they, I imagine these will last for the long haul and this is an example where there's no reason I should have to go and wait in an hour and a half long line to get a temporary tag when I can do it this way in, in three minutes and avoid mixing with people who might make me sick. It's a, it's a good thing, and, and I hope the rest of the government services keep, keep coming this way. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How did the Cannonball Run crown the unofficial honor of driving the fastest from coast to coast come back to Ohio? Chris Ranowski, this has been one of my favorite stories for the past year, even though I guess it's probably ethically challenged because <laughs> it's just such a rollicking thing. I mean, we've got these guys that are local. They, they got the crown. They lost the crown. They got the crown again. So talk a little bit about what went into this. Wait, so why do you think it might be unethical? <laughs> What's the well, other issue? Is it just we'll, we'll, we'll get burning, to that. Burning let, let, okay, let, let's give people the context, and then I can raise what I'm thinking there. Okay, so uh, an exotic car dealer from here in Northeast Ohio, and and two other daredevils set a cross country continent driving record in November. They call it the Cannonball Run. Uh, which it, it, did the movie come first, or did the race come first? I'm not. I, I'm not sure about the history of that part of it. I'm not sure. Yeah. So famous Burt Reynolds, Dom DeLuise, Jackie Gleason movie. Anyway, Doug Tabbitt, who uh, runs Switch Cars in Twinsburg, and Arn Torman of Chicago drove a high-performance Audi 2,816 miles from the Red Bull Garage in Manhattan, uh, which is the customary starting point of the Cannonball Run, to its endpoint at the Portofino Hotel and Marina in Los Angeles in 25 hours and 39 minutes, which shaves 59 minutes off the previous record and means that the two drivers, along with their navigator and police spotter, <laughs> averaged nearly 110 miles an hour on the trip. That's amazing. 110 right. miles an hour across the country, average right. speed. 
So, you know, setting the record obviously requires the drivers not only to exceed the speed limits, but to violate traffic laws. So you have to kind of do it in secret. Uh, I actually remember seeing a few years ago, the people who ran the, the show Jackass did a documentary where they participated in it. And it's actually fascinating and it looks like a blast, but you know, obviously you have to, uh, you have to make a very, uh, conscious decision to break the law <laughs> to do it. So, well, and they deck out the cars with, you know, heat sensing binoculars and all sorts of stuff that, that will help them spot cops. And, and Pete Cross's story on this one, they heard a radio report. The police are looking for their car and they're looking all over wondering what to do. And they said, you know, I think we already passed that guy. Let's get the hell out of this state. <laughs> but here's right. the, the question I'm asking. Look, I love this. This is fun. These guys are creative and they're you know adventurous but this is the height of danger dry averaging 110 miles per hour is risking not just your life but the lives of people on the road they would say we're very professional we don't take any risks but i you know driving 110 miles so is this the equivalent taking joy out of having this discussion and reading the tale is it the equivalent of watching football knowing that the concussions that those guys suffer very likely will shorten their lives and lead to brain disease. And that, that that's where I'm saying the ethical question, should we take so much pleasure out of this story when it's kind of dangerous? Sure. I mean, we need, <laughs> we all need some joy anymore. I mean, I'm, I'm, look, I'm a nerd <laughs> on the road. I'm a 10 and two guy. So, you know, you're never going to see me doing this, but you know, if, if these are people who are willing to pay the consequences of it, of, of, of getting caught or what would happen to them if they didn't get caught, you know, that's, that's on them. You know, and and it's it's one of those things where it's it's like taking pleasure in blooper videos or like like somebody falling down the stairs. You know, it's like, yeah, you probably shouldn't laugh at that, but you do. And and it's you know, you could feel bad about it or you could talk about the ethics of it. But these don't seem like people who if they get arrested, they're going to be like, what? Like, oh, how did this happen? Uh, you know, I I feel like they're prepared if they get caught and get in trouble. But it's. Yeah, I mean, you do. I mean, that's an interesting I love, point. I love that that after they got it the first time, and we did the stories last year. They said they wouldn't do it again, even if they were beaten. But then they were beaten by somebody who used COVID to to beat the record because the roads in America were empty during the beginning of COVID. Another team of unidentified people broke the record and there were serious questions then saying you know this is irresponsible because if you do have an accident you're drawing necessary public resources away from the emergency of covid these guys in setting the new record and retaking the crown took some advantage of reduced traffic they left new york city yeah. at six o'clock at night and managed to get out of there in a hurry, which you never would have done before COVID. Well, but 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 think about it. You know, we we see these. I mean, there there's that. Uh, there was a documentary that came out about a guy who you know free climbs, and a lot of times people who do that they do it in places where they're not supposed to be, and something about it captures the imagination of the public. That you know maybe it's we can't view ourselves as people who would break the rules in that way, or and people who would push themselves in that way. And I think that's probably why it does sort of capture the imagination of people like you and me who, who, you know, I'm not going to jump in my Hyundai Kona and, and, and try to try to do a coast to coast thing as fast as I can. I mean, it's something that I would never imagine doing, but 
you know, I do think it's it's interesting they disguise their Audi as a, <laughs> a Ford, you know, Ford like yeah. police car thing, which is, you know, I don't want to look like an Audi. I want to look like an American I wonder, car. Do they pick that kind of car specifically because it's like least likely to get pulled over to land on a, a Ford Taurus is, is such I, a well, very specific does. choice. It did look like a police car. The the car they used the first time got wrecked when it was parked on the side of the road, so they had to get a new one. Um, You can read Pete Krass's story about this on our website, but you got to be a paying subscriber to do so. It'll be in the Plain Dealer, I believe, on Sunday. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Well, talk about rollicking. We've been all over the place today. We had (laughs) Cannonball Run. We got Mike DeWine in the boycott. We got Terry Allen dressing as buckwheat. It's been a, uh, a wildly divergent set of topics. Hope you guys have a good weekend. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. Laura Johnston will be back to join us on Monday. 